from KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Dr. Erica Pond has been appointed the new California State Epidemiologist. She'll join us to talk about her experience leading Alameda County's coronavirus response, including clashes with Elon Musk over the opening of the Fremont Tesla factory and being targeted on social media for sheltering in place mandates. And we'll ask her about California counties on the coronavirus watch list recent COVID-related deaths among San Quentin prisoners, and emerging evidence of greater airborne spread of coronavirus. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. Last week, Governor Newsom appointed Alameda County's top health official, Dr. Erica Pond, the new California state epidemiologist. And she joins us now to talk about her vision for the new job at a time when the state reported a record number of more than 10,000 coronavirus cases yesterday. And there's concern that fatalities, which would remain flat, may increase. And welcome, Dr. Erica Pond. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you back with us on Forum, and congratulations on your new position. There's much to talk about there. I want to obviously talk with you about your vision for this new job uh, that you have ascended to and uh, find out what you foresee. But first of all, uh, I'd like to talk to you about the job of being a public health officer, which you held. Uh, and I raise this because there was an article by Ed Young in The Atlantic, uh, someone whom I've come to respect a great deal, uh, where he writes about many public health specialists uh, at risk of, well, frankly, burning out because of the coronavirus surges coming back and the frustration in the job, uh, frustration particularly at the kind of failures. It's a little Sisyphusian, if you'll forgive that word, from mm -hmm. me. Um, and, and you were under a great deal of strain as well. So I'd like you to comment on just the job of being a public health officer and what it meant to you. Uh, sure. Thanks uh, for the opportunity. It's uh, a really important and unique role, and I think, you know, as you and others are pointing out, I think, you know, most most people in the public didn't really know what public health officers did until this pandemic, and, um, you know, it's a really important role regarding thinking about the health of a whole community. Uh, the way I often think about it is, you know, the, the jurisdiction that I'm overseeing is my patient as opposed to, you know, when I'm doing individual patient care. But, you know, in my role as Alameda County Health Officer, I think of the entire county and population as my patient that I need to do my best to take care of. Um, and, of course, this is extremely challenging um, in any location, but I think, you know, some of the unique um, and wonderful aspects of Alameda County are the incredible diversity that we have. Um, we have very dense urban areas. Um, such as Oakland, and we have our Tri-Valley area that is a little more spread out and, you know, very different demographics in different parts of the county. We have our southern Alameda County that has, you know, different aspects as well. Uh, so it's an important um, role and an honor. I think, you know, again, a lot of our, um, the other way I describe our public health role in general, including the public health officer, is that when we're doing our job well, um, we are, are, it's a silent success and, and people don't often know what we're doing behind the scenes. And, and as you're noting, this has very much been a time of not only um, an incredible amount of work to respond to this pandemic, but a lot of um, 
public uh, sort of scrutiny and certainly at a point now with um, fatigue around the various interventions that we cannot please everyone by any means. And you took uh, a lot of shellacking, uh, I mean, for decisions that you made. I think probably every public health officer has, but a lot of that has been more targeted against women, I'm sorry to say. And uh, you even had this very public clash with Elon Musk, who's now, uh, I guess, officially an advisor to Kanye West seeking the presidential office in the United States. Um, what about the whole opening of Tesla and, and the way that went down? Um, I think what I'll say about that is just that we were had been working closely with the sort of on-the-ground team um, on a safe reopening plan. And uh, yes, it was unfortunate that there were some miscommunications on, on the status of that and, and some public... Um, yeah, public public uh, mention from him that was difficult again and, and detracting again from my main role, which again is to protect the health and safety of our our county and our community. Um, but I I think the important note there was that again there was there was a collaborative work going on, uh, sort of on the ground and and in the field. And uh, yes, unfortunate detractions from the important work that we do. And uh, the important work becomes, uh, in many ways, even more charged as you take over this new position, which, as I said, I want to talk with you about specifically in terms of what you envision. Uh, but first, can, can I ask you, since President Trump just today, again, has been really pushing for reopening of schools and threatening to withdraw funding if they don't, to get your take on that? Yeah, actually, that's a, a great and important topic. Uh, and I actually... Uh, there's a few things, and I've been spending a lot of time as a pediatric infectious disease specialist is my clinical background as well, thinking about this and working with our county superintendent and local school districts and starting to think about this statewide as well. And and actually, I, I think more and more we're learning that uh, children actually um, not only are infected less frequently and have less serious illness, but more and more studies evolving globally. Um, and even here in the U.S. Are, are finding that we not only see less uh, infections in children and, and less seriousness, but they tend to be, be uh, not necessarily the source of, of infection the way they often are for influenza, for example, where we modeled a lot of our school closure interventions and uh, school closure mitigations around influenza. And it's turning out that COVID-19 is a very different virus where, again, kids are not necessarily the amplification or, or sources of outbreaks. And in, in fact, in many studies, less than 10% of the time are they the, the case that then infected others. It's usually the other way around. So, And then the other consideration is how how much loss we are seeing, you know, even from three months of, of lost school this past academic year um, in, in kids. And the spectrum, of course, is huge. And it's another area where you can magnify disparities of kids who might be out of school who don't have access to uh, the technology for distance learning. And, and even those that are incredibly resourced, you know, there's a lot of data showing that in-person learning is so much more important. So my actual perspective on this is that I think it is important to work towards reopening schools and that we can really educate the public and the school administration and the teachers about this evolving data and really work very hard to ensure that teachers and staff stay safe. And actually more of the concern would be with the adults infecting other adults, which is the same in any workplace. Um, so I actually think it is important to reopen our schools um, as safely as possible. What about reopening the economies? I mean, uh, the state just approved yesterday a regional variance to reopen uh, the economy in Santa Clara and Already there are some concerns about that, but also you have this Bay Area, talking about the Bay Area specifically, but really throughout California, coronavirus watch list. 
And that's based on not only rising infections, but hospitalization rates. Uh, you got 23 presently uh, on that list, uh, including, well, uh, Santa Clara is on the list, uh, I believe, but uh, Contra, uh, Santa Clara is off the list, but Contra Casacani has come on it, Marin is on it, Solano is on it, and so forth. I mean, it, 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 with these upsurges, how do we continue to assess and how do we really get a, a fix on deciding who should be on that watch list and who shouldn't and when the opening should begin and end. That's really going to come under your aegis to a great deal when you take over as chief epidemiologist. Yeah, so the the monitoring list includes a few different parameters. There's some, um, and they're very similar and overlapping to some of the parameters we had chosen here in the Bay Area to be looking at as far as progress and, and managing this pandemic, and it has to do with um, the testing conducted, you know, per population, um, and then, you know, increase in case rate per day over a two-week period, what percent of tests are positive, um, what's the increase in hospitalizations, and then what is hospitalization capacity looking like. Uh, and I think, you know, the important idea around this is to, to have some early warnings and indicators to really pay more attention to those spots and, and then really um, look at that local level at what is thought to be driving that transmission and increase. Um, so I think it's a way for us to collectively, you know, pay attention to what we would call the hot spots and, and really, again, try to target interventions to um, improve those sort of overall numbers. Um, and I think, I think the other difficult thing related to both of your questions is we are all kind of really, again, learning, you know, I think in mid-March when we first did, uh, you know, the shelter in place in, in the Bay Area and in California, I think we all hoped that this would be, you know, a shorter term, you know, maybe a couple months of uh, a more strict shelter in place, uh, and then that we could move forward. And I think, again, we've learned so much over the last three months. COVID time is, is really at warp speed, but learning globally and, and locally about asymptomatic, asymptomatic transmission and just the difficulties on managing this disease. and and coming to grips with the fact that we are going to be living with this virus and we need to do aggressive uh, public health interventions and community and collaborative interventions to to mitigate and, and prevent infection and slow disease spread. But um, it's, not, um, it's not going to be as, as easy as I think we hoped several months ago. And I think we're all going to be really shifting, thinking about how do we live with this, this, this virus and this pandemic over the next you know, possibly a year or two until we can get more effective and easier to provide treatments and or uh, an effective vaccine. Well, there's so many challenges uh, almost daily. I mean, over in Alameda, where you were chief health officer, we had a pause in the opening of the economy because of increases in not only COVID cases, but the hospitalizations. And I was going to ask you also about, which I guess I am asking for your vision as now California state epidemiologists uh, with um, increased number of cases and upsurges and more people going into the hospitals, how, how we can keep track of this uh, and, and, and as at least efficacious as possible, keep up with uh, the kind of surges that we're seeing. I was going to ask you, for example, about uh, the pressure that's being put now on Governor Newsom to cut prison populations uh, because of the spread of corona within the prisons, uh, including in many ways, which getting a great deal of attention, San Quentin, because of the transfer of prisoners from Chino there. Uh, this is an ongoing threat. It's an ongoing threat not only to those who are incarcerated, but it puts a strain on community hospitals to an even greater degree. And the governor's having a lot of pressure to release prisoners. Where do you stand? 
Um, well, and I think a lot of that is actually happening. Um, and uh, yeah, again, as, as you just mentioned as well, I think we have really tough um, challenges and balances of, of uh, and, and then using these indicators and, and ways to look again for where the hotspots are to really target and prioritize our interventions. And they may be different in different areas. And to your point, you know, we need to really make sure our incarcerated populations um, have really aggressive uh, follow-up and, and plans procedures and, um, you know, aggressive intervention to, to try to remove and isolate people as much as possible who have been um, exposed um, and, and to, uh, you know, make sure there's there's enough space in prison. So I think that is part of that release. So a lot of that is is happening as we speak. Um, you know, we're already hearing about that as far as re uh, receiving uh, incarcerated persons in our local communities. So um, yeah, all big challenges again, as you said. And I think um, really looking to uh, I think with thinking forward to the state and then knowing bringing my local perspective, I know that each community is somewhat unique. So having these indicators to monitor that are consistent, but then working with the local sort of government and public health officials to better understand what might be driving that epidemic locally, and then seeing what we can do statewide to help leverage um, state resources to help, again, aggressively intervene to to uh, mitigate and prevent further spread and slow the spread and protect our hospital capacity. Well, let me ask you directly, though, about release of prisoners, because 3,500 were released in April from custody, as I'm sure you're aware, all had only within two months uh, of release time uh, in terms of their incarceration, uh, and none of them were for violent crimes. So there's been a lot of advocacy that uh, along those lines, but there are justice reform groups, for example, who say that well, those who were in for violent crimes, many of them were set to, uh, uh, set, given long sentences when they were young, they don't necessarily present the threat now that they presented back then. And there's also the problem, and this is a big problem, of putting people out there in the hospitals and out in the community and what that means. And so we've got some issues here. In fact, I'm going to read something to you, if I may, from uh, uh, columnist Dan Bornstein that sort of not only is related to what we're talking about with opening up economies again, but also with respect to the prisoners. Uh, and he writes, the potpourri of regulations in California makes it impossible to provide the public with a clear message of what's permitted and what isn't. And for residents and businesses, no matter how well-intentioned, to keep track and comply. I mean, Santa Clara, as I'm sure you're aware, has also expressed frustration over this back and forth with the state over July 4th weekend around reopening guidelines. And so we have uh, many people who are just reaching out for some kind of coherence or some kind of continuity here, or something that makes sense. And I realize that this is changing and in flux day by day, and that's the greatest challenge of all. But I'd like to hear some wisdom from you on this, if you could. Uh, sure. I think, I think again, um one of my thoughts and vision and, and perspectives is that, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, I think I think we need to collectively really start to to manage expectations as a, a community and a state that we're going to be living with this virus for the foreseeable future, um, you know, potentially another year or two. And I think early on, a lot of our um, interventions, you know, are more manageable for shorter periods of time. But now that we really kind of know that we're going to be potentially having, you know, uh, what I would call peaks and valleys, you know, some of the other terminology around this is, is first and second waves. But, you know, again, we're going to do a lot of interventions to, to continue to suppress and mitigate. 
but we're going to have peaks and valleys um, over the foreseeable, you know, next several months, if not a year or two. So I do think we need to start to think about um, a framework that might shift, you know, how do we do risk reduction, you know, in these different settings and still continue to make sure that people are not doing the highest risk things and, and especially, um, you know, and doing as much as we can to prevent them. Um, and then certainly when we find out that is a source or a driver, needing to stop them completely, but really kind of shifting our framework to what, how do we uh, reopen and resume. It's going to be a new normal. We're certainly not going to be back to the way things were before COVID um, hit here um, for a very long time. And so how do we all adjust and, and, and you know, hear you and agree that I think we need to be thinking about uh, what are the consistencies there that we can sort of shift to over time as we all grapple with, with our, our new normal. As state epidemiologists, do you want to perhaps uh, outline what some of those consistencies might be or what you imagine them to be or hope they would be? Well, I think, you know, and as I, I think even on a, a prior um, forum, even in thinking about, you know, harm reduction, and so really working on principles that everyone can understand around, you know, the lowest risk is, of course, being uh, away from other people and certainly a six feet or more distance, and anything outdoors is much, much lower risk than indoors. Uh, and then, you know, thinking about the spectrum of risk and how people can start to think about those risk assessments, both uh, for an individual level for a family level and then a community level. And so, you know, the highest risk events are, of course, you know, when you bring a lot of people together who are closely, you know, dense groups of people, the larger the number, the worse, the closer together, the worse, indoors is worse. Um, and we need to, again, really implement things like continue the physical distancing and face coverings. And we're certainly not seeing uniform adaptation of that yet. So I think, you know, we really need to shift our social norms around that um, and also do the enforcement that we can around it. But, you know, we're really learning again in this pandemic from the public health side, you know, I as a local health officer can issue an order, but, you know, I, I don't have the enforcement um, power to be in all places at all times. And so really need to work with our community, our community leaders to really shift our norms and really reduce the risk. Talk about reducing risks. Uh, let me read a comment from a listener named Leslie who says, if face coverings are worn at, say, a 90% compliance rate under the circumstances specified, how long would doing so be effective in sufficiently eliminating the virus, at least in the Bay Area, or would the lack of compliance in neighboring counties uh, effectively erase the gains made? Uh, so that's a great question. I'd say in general, there's more and more evidence of, um, and to the point of the more people who are complying, this is very much a public health measure, not just an individual measure. So again, you know, someone else's mask protects me and my mask protects others. So you do need to have that overall compliance. And, and then the other theme, um, as far as the lower or higher risk is if we can stay in our own communities as much as possible and minimize mixing across groups or communities. So that's why we have these concepts, um, you know, in childcare and camps and even this uh, social bubble concept of really trying to minimize the number of people you come in contact with and, and trying to minimize, you know, uh, mixing across uh, communities or, or jurisdictions will really help to prevent further disease spread. Our guest is Dr. Erica Pond, and she is now California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director of the Center for Infectious Diseases at the California Department of Public Health, former health officer of Alameda County. If you'd like to join us with Dr. Pond, if you have questions for her about how the state is responding to the coronavirus pandemic, you can give us a call right now. The number to call is 866-733-6786. 
Again, please feel free to join the program. 866-733-6786 is the number to call or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. Here's a question from a listener named Kelly, Dr. Pond, who writes, at the beginning of the shelter-in-place order, Bay Area counties were taking a united approach. Now there's a patchwork of policies in place across counties. If people want to do almost any activity, all they have to do is cross into another county. This seems like it would increase virus spread in all counties. Why not take a united approach as a region? Um, another great question, and one quick clarification, too. I haven't quite started my my next position yet. I start on July 13th and uh, definitely in a bit of a transition mode this week. Um, so I officially start the new position July 13th. Uh, and then, um, you know, yes, we, we absolutely – uh, we're, you know, went into the shelter-in-place order unified and, and maintained our unified approach for uh, several weeks. I think, I think what did start to emerge is some differences in our local epidemiology and um, some of these indicators, you know, that we were talking about earlier related to uh, number of hospitalizations, uh, increases in case rates. You know, we did just start to see a lot more variability. Uh, across the different groups and, and counties, um, and and saw, you know, found that we we just based on our local epidemiology uh, needed to to vary. The the Bay Area health officers, you know, are on the phone almost twice a week, frequently, sometimes more, and and doing a lot to coordinate again policies and um, and and various things. But it has admittedly, you know, been hard on the health officers as well as the communities as, as things have diverged. I think, again, as we start to think more about our uh, shifting framework, I think there there may be more uh, unity in the future, and we do hear and understand these concerns about, you know, the jurisdictions and boundaries. The virus doesn't know those boundaries, and uh, on the other hand, as, as local health officers, we have to uh, we are responsible for the, the community within our boundaries, but uh, that is a challenge and problem when it's it's acceptable to do something just across the street uh, from when the boundary is right there. Well, since you're speaking about local health officers, we got seconds before the break here, but you are in transition. And yesterday we had Dr. Joel Paradon talking about the Oakland Zoo and uh, maybe some light before we go to our break about whether or not it's going to be able to open again. Yes, we've been working very closely with Oakland Zoo, and, uh, you know, it's a very low risk as far as being uh, outdoors, and the zoo would plan to open, you know, without any indoor uh, exhibits, and uh, we are hoping between uh, getting either state approval to be an outdoor museum or to move forward in, in other processes to support that moving forward. But it, there has been a, a pause pressed on all kinds of reopenings with the, the recent increases in numbers and hospitalizations. Again, please feel free to join us with Dr. Erica Pond. You can do that by calling in toll-free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny.
This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We are spending the hour with Dr. Erica Pond, California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at the California Department of Public Health and former health officer with Alameda County. If you'd like to join us on the program, you can do it by phone, by calling us toll free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org with your questions. Uh, we got an email from someone named Russ Mitchell, Dr. Pond, who covers Tesla for the LA Times. And let me read you what he writes. He says, I'd like to ask Dr. Pond why she chose to allow Tesla to open a week early. And what that says about equal protection under the law is no other business was allowed to openly defy county orders and get away with it. So, again, we were working closely with the safety officer and medical director at the time, and our understanding was the, the size of the operation needed some ramp-up time. So what we allowed was uh, a minor difference between their basic minimum operations and their ramping up to, to operate on that next opening, uh, which I believe was May 18th. So it, it was, you know, it is a unique setting that we did again, work closely with them on what would be some exceptions around uh, ramping up. And we, again, allowed other uh, other companies or organizations, if they had minimum business operations, to, to do things like that as well. So it wasn't exceptional for Tesla then? They were not uh, the lone rare bird here, so to speak? Well, as our largest manufacturer, we wanted to be sure we did have – we don't review every single – uh, there is a site-specific plan required for, you know, in the state of California for all reopenings, and uh, we don't actually review all those. We don't have the capacity, but certainly because this is the largest manufacturer, we worked closely to review it in detail and have a lot of back and forth to make sure we felt comfortable with that. And in that process, the the request that we granted was to do a ramp-up uh, between their minimum basic operations and their full startup. I do want to get to our listeners' comments and questions, but uh, last uh, hour we talked about the decision to remove the United States from the World Health Organization from the Trump administration, and I wondered what you thought about something that came up in that discussion that had to do with these larger droplets as opposed to aerosol, which are being debated as we speak probably by the WHO, where to come out on this. Where do you come out on this? Yeah, it's a, an interesting debate that has come up that I think actually may not be truly new. So influenza as well is primarily a droplet transmittable disease, but as uh, as droplets get projected, for example, when people, and we're learning more and more, especially in studying COVID, when you project, for example, when you are yelling or singing, uh, you project those droplets further out and they can become smaller particles and aerosolize. And so there's always been discussion as well with influenza about what, it's a spectrum essentially. And so some of, and it's thought to be the most uh, the highest proportion of transmission for influenza, for example, is droplet, and potentially some proportion of that is aerosol transmission. And my sense is that COVID-19 is very similar, and that was true for uh, other coronaviruses such as SARS and MERS. And so, again, there is likely some component of airborne transmission, but it seems very different as far as the, the infectiousness and attack rate compared to something like measles, which is truly uh, airborne and not droplet, where the attack rate is so much higher and the what we call reproductive uh, R-naught number is that for every case, you can have 12 to 18 others who are infected, whereas with 
with COVID-19, the data is anyway is typically like with no interventions, uh, potentially one case can infect, infect, you know, three to five others. So I think this is a, uh, not necessarily a new controversy, and I think it's more important in countries that don't have as many protections as we have here in the U.S. as far as airborne isolation rooms and uh, N95 respirators in the healthcare setting. And I think also the other question that comes around with this is with face coverings in the community. Again, if you can contain that and contain, you know, those droplets before they get projected and before they aerosolize, then you are, in fact, mitigating and preventing transmission. Let me bring a caller and welcome, Lori. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, yes. Um, my question is, are the shields, the face shields, as effective as the masks? I noticed that the medical personnel wear both, and um, I have a face shield, but uh, was wondering if it would be as effective as the mask, just just the shield. Thank you for the question, Lori. Dr. Pond? So are you referring to a, a plastic face shield, like a, as opposed yeah. to a cloth? Oh, yes. So that can provide a good barrier, and often in the healthcare setting, people are wearing those for eye protection as well, which is another component of uh, droplet protection and making sure if, if a patient is aerosolizing or projecting that the mucous membranes of the eyes are protected. So a lot of the facial protection is for that. We are, in thinking about the community, would want to make sure for face shields that there can't be transmission sort of underneath the plastic face shield and that it's not adequate compared to covering your mouth more closely. So, for example, in some of the guidance for schools or other settings, we are saying if, if a face shield is going to be substituted so that, for example, a student could see limp, lips uh, to see the um, for occupational therapy or young children, that there would be a cloth covering uh, below the bottom of the, face, the plastic face shield to ensure that those droplets don't get projected underneath. Let me thank uh, Peggy, uh, excuse me, let me thank uh, uh, the caller, Lori, and go to Peggy, another caller from Montara. Welcome, Peggy. Um, yes, I was wondering why health officials aren't stressing wearing glasses along with masks, because if you get a, par a particle of virus in your eye, you are immediately infected and there's nothing you can do about it. So, again, it's all about how much virus you might be exposed to as well. And so, again, in the healthcare setting when you know people are symptomatic and most likely shedding more virus or there are procedures happening uh, where a person may be exposed, that's where it's most important to have that eye protection. If everyone is wearing face coverings, then, again, the, those particles and, and droplets of virus should not be projected and touching someone, getting into somebody's eyes. And then the other piece is, of course, again, why we really continue to emphasize washing your hands, disinfecting frequently, is the idea that there could potentially be what we call fomite transmission, where if you touch something and there's enough virus particles on there to infect, and then you touch your mucous membrane, so whether that's your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, that that is a potential route of transmission. Although, again, the primary route, we think, is droplets that are, again, projected, close person-to-person -person contact, as opposed to we're, we're still not sure how much is contributed by what we call fomite transmission or contact with virus and then touching your mucous membranes. And let me thank Peggy for the call. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Pond, there has been an overflow with the subsurge uh, into the hospitals uh, 
along with prisoners being transferred and so forth, as I alluded to before. San Francisco, in fact, is taking a lot of overflow uh, transfers to San Francisco General and UCSF. Uh, they're getting patients from San Quentin and from Imperial County. And one of our listeners, uh, James, wants to know, where can we get percentage of hospital beds occupied by COVID-19 patients for all counties in the state? The California dashboard doesn't seem to include it. So what is included in the dashboards on the county data chart on the cdph.ca.gov list are what percent of ICU beds are currently available, what percent of ventilators are currently available, and then uh, the other trend, just trying to see if I can look at it quickly as well, as the polls does show, uh, again, the number of hospitals patients at a time. We certainly on the local level are also looking at that what our bed capacity is and what percent. So with my Alameda County hat, I know we had been previous, I haven't re-looked at this week's with our increase, but you know, previous to, uh, we were always ranging around anywhere from uh, around 80 to 100 people in the hospital, and that was still less than 5% of our beds occupied and less than 10% of our ICU beds occupied by COVID patients. So uh, we are monitoring that closely as individual local health departments. And uh, if people are really interested in that, you know, that may be something that evolves as well. What happened to the, uh, just since you mentioned Alameda County, what happened to the request to uh, actually uh, seek a variance from the state? Uh, we are still under consideration for that here in Alameda County. Okay, uh, and we'll get another caller with you. Joel joins us next from Oakland. Good morning, Joel. Hey, it's good to be here. You know, I had a question around the county's test, uh, the county's testing and testing times. I was recently tested through um, the recommendations through the city of Oakland down on 10th Street uh, run by the Baseline Project, and it was an eight-day turnaround for the testing. And I was really shocked and surprised to see that, and... Um, or to experience that. I was wondering what you can talk about in terms of testing, testing turnaround, and what can be done to um, to improve that. Sure, that's definitely a challenge in some of the different settings, and we here in this county have, I think at this point, over definitely over 30 sites where people can get tested, and there's a huge variety of everything from how quickly once a specimen is collected it gets to the lab and then the turnaround times of the labs i think again we've met we've met our benchmarks here in this county uh of over 200 per 100,000 population which is uh there's a, been i think around 3300 tests per day in the last several days uh, but turnaround time is important as you note and again there's a lot of in order to get to that capacity there's a lot of different labs that have come around and uh, as testing increases, uh, the turnaround times, I think, like many other aspects of this pandemic, I think different different parts of the response are continuing to try to escalate and keep up with the pace of either a demand or the virus. And so that is definitely a concern uh, that we, we share. And I think different labs uh, and and hospitals, et cetera, are working on how to improve those times. And also our hope is that the technology improves as well to improve the, the actual time it takes to actually do the test. Again, our guest is Dr. Erica Pond, now California State Epidemiologist. So getting some questions, Dr. Pond, about uh, schooling. And I just want to read a comment first. Uh, a listener writes, the media generally should stop talking about schools as if Kindergartners, middle and high school students, college and graduate students were one group to be dealt with the same way. I think there's a good deal of sense in that. But some questions from listeners about school. 
Uh, Trina wants to know, will communities need to show a pattern of decreasing case rates before their schools will be able to open? I think, again, it's going to be one of the factors, but from my perspective and what I was saying earlier, the importance of kids being in school and having structure, uh, both for those kids themselves and our community as a whole, and actually as another part of our being able to slowly revive our economy and allow for our workforce to return to work, it's really important for us to do everything we can to put in safety measures. And, and there's absolutely a spectrum of guidance about whether or not it's preschool age and childcare versus elementary school and middle and high school. And certainly the, the guidance is from the CDC, the state, uh, and then at some points local health departments are also providing input into some of the nitty gritty. There are variations in guidance about what to do in those different levels and age, what's age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. Yeah, and let me mention, we did a whole hour on this, and it's in our archives, uh, but David wants to know, I teach at a high school regarding children being less prone to the virus. At what specific age do people become more vulnerable and more contagious? So, uh, like everything else, I think people like to hear uh, cutoffs, and my sense, I was actually just reviewing this data in the last couple of days, and it's a, it's a spectrum again. It, it seems to be one theory around why children are uh, infected less and or have less serious infection is they have certain less expression of uh, something called ACE2 receptors in their in their noses and, and that's an entryway for the virus and it seems to be that the, the number of receptors increases with age uh, and on the other end of things it certainly seems to be the risk of serious illness increases with age so there's it's all a spectrum. And a question from a listener named Rusty who asks, do you believe more public attention should be focused on the chronic and extreme morbidity of COVID, not just its mortality? And what about the high, short, and long-term cost of care and lost income from COVID and its morbidity? So this is something, yes, we need to be studying, and there are ongoing studies, and I think, and certainly as the listener is pointing out, concerns about what are the chronic consequences of of this virus, and I think it's because, you know, in its nature of it being chronic, it's going to take time to be able to study that. I, I do think there are many different uh, clinical studies looking at that and following people over time, so we will know more with time. But, but because, again, by the nature of it being chronic, we won't know until we see over time, uh, but it is certainly of concern. And again, if you'd like to join us with Dr. Erica Pond, you can call us at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. So let's get back to the new role you're going to be playing here and the responsibilities that go with it. Uh, what kind of changes can we expect under, well, your leadership? Uh, well, again, I, I start next week, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to hitting the ground running. I think, you know, the 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 Center for Infectious Diseases is – uh, and this has actually been sort of a dream job opportunity, opportunity for me for a long time, even prior to COVID. And I can't imagine a more important time to actually be doing this work statewide. But even within that Center for Infectious Diseases, uh, outside of COVID, there is, you know, all of our HIV work, tuberculosis work, sexually transmitted infection work, immunizations. Uh, there's also an Office of Refugee Health and Border Health. So there's a lot of other sort of programs, too, to think about how we maintain our continuity of operations and then uh, a big focus on, of course, maintaining and expanding our COVID-19 response statewide. So I think uh, some of my initial thoughts are really uh, working to 
make sure we are coordinating and communicating as as well as we can across different state agencies, working well with the local health departments. I have a big interest in helping us think more about regions. Uh, you know, again, the point of one of the listeners, and, and certainly we see natural regions, and on one hand, the state of California is so large we can't have one size fits all for every intervention, and so really trying to think about formalizing regions that make sense based on a combination of how this disease is transmitted and our economies and our natural health care regions and really trying to formalize that to come up with some regional approaches that make sense is one thing I would love to work on that I think would help us all. Uh, and again, really making sure we're leveraging all the resources we can within uh, our local government, local health, state health, and, and other state agencies to, to battle this virus and this pandemic. Since you mentioned all the diseases and uh, afflictions that come under your aegis, uh, I wonder what your response is to a question put forward by a listener named Laura who asks, is it possible that if we continue taking precautions against COVID into fall and winter, a silver lining might be a low number of seasonal flu cases? That's a great question, and I haven't heard a lot of thought or modeling put into that yet, but to the point that they are transmitted very similarly as far as what I was speaking about earlier in the spectrum of droplet versus airborne, and if people are physically distancing and wearing face coverings, then, and the other really important thing we all need to start working on is, uh, I'll start emphasizing it now, the importance of getting flu vaccine will be more important than ever this year to make sure we get everyone six months of age and older to get flu vaccine this year to really prevent any kind of co-peak of COVID-19 and flu. But that is a great point that uh, hopefully, in addition to getting vaccinated, if people are maintaining their physical distancing and face coverings, that we should ideally see less disease transmission for all kinds of respiratory viruses, including flu. And here's Liz from Santa Barbara. Liz, welcome. You're on the air with us. Hi. Um, my question is about um, indoor school. I'm, I really want to see kids back to school in the fall, but I'm concerned because if indoor is the most dangerous is one of the more dangerous situations. It doesn't seem feasible to me. How can we make a whole school outdoor school and make sure that everyone's safe? So again, like everything else, I think there's going to be a lot of balances and some schools may have more outdoor resources than others to do more outdoor learning or activities. Uh, there's a lot of other recommendations that will happen indoors, including having kids wear face coverings, uh, making sure that, again, the most important things will be that the adults maintain as much physical distance from each other um, versus from the kids. And, and we are going to need to acknowledge that kids at a younger age are going to have a harder time doing physical distancing, although I think kids are also much more resilient and adaptable than we give them credit for. Uh, both as a parent and a pediatrician, I, I do think, and seeing some of what's happening, you know, again, worldwide for those countries that have dealt with this earlier than we have, I think kids can really adapt to, again, keeping face coverings on, uh, maintaining a lot of physical distancing, but we'll also be focusing on kids having focused cohorts like they are now, even in childcare, and really trying to minimize the number of uh, contacts children have and maintaining stable cohorts will be one way to really minimize the potential for disease transmission in those settings. Let me go back for a moment, if we could, Doctor, uh, to uh, 
San Quentin, so to speak, um, because Dr. Peter Chin Hong, whom I'm sure you know, who's been on this program, UCSF infectious disease specialist, is saying the situation is so dangerous there now that the state really needs to consider evacuating the entire facility. Is that under consideration or would that be under consideration with you, a state epidemiologist? I have a lot to do to get more up to speed on that entire situation, so I don't think I can comment on that right now. Fair enough. Let me get Suzanne on next then. Suzanne, join us. Hello, good morning. Uh, my name is Suzanne Van Houten. I'm a licensed hairstylist and salon owner in Oakland. And I'm calling to ask Erica and the Alameda County Health Department to consider giving salons, barbershops, manicurists our own criteria rather than considering us the same risk as indoor dining, pro sports, and swimming pools. So each sector will be looked at individually, and we do have a proposed reopening map that always subject to revision. I think, as you heard and, you know, again, has been seen because of the recent surge and, and spikes in the Bay Area, there's been a pause on, on everything. So, uh, but I do think each sector is, is looked at individually. And, uh, you know, again, the local public health officials are doing their best to try to balance the different risks and needs of the community. And, and again, understanding that each sector also has their own uh, economic needs as well to resume operations. So uh, all of that will be taken into consideration, I'm sure. And let me thank Suzanne yeah, for her call. Yeah, and, oh, you have something else, Suzanne? I'm sorry. That. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. Th thank you. We'll get another caller on here. That's Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome. Hi. Hi, Michael. Hi, Erica. Um, my question is, do you know, Erica, what the latest data is on the um, accuracy of the PCR? The last time I looked they were yielding like a 30% false negative. So I'm curious if that's changed. I have not looked at the most, most recent data, and of course it will depend on which PCR machine and which reagents they're using. So there's variability within the different manufacturers of the test. Uh, I've not heard that high of a, a false, uh, did you say it was a 30% false yeah, negative there a, rate? There was a study that came out of China, I believe. We should first of all define what a PCR is for listeners. Sure, that's a polymerase uh, chain reaction test, which looks for the RNA of the virus itself. Um, and another, and so most of the testing that people have heard about are seen where you're doing a swab in the nose or the oropharynx is a PCR test to look for the RNA itself. The other interesting point about that as well is that finding that positive test does not necessarily correlate to infectiousness. So there could be sort of uh, what we would say not viable or, or dead particles there. And we have seen some people test for a very long period of time, but when you try to culture and see if that virus is, is actually still replicating, uh, there's very few people that, that are infectious beyond nine or 10 days, which is why isolation recommendations are for up to 10 days. Jennifer, thank you for the call, and let's bring Bruce on now from Fremont. Bruce, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So um, I'm a volunteer, longtime volunteer in Little League Baseball and Softball in Fremont, and um, I'm wondering when, you know, what will be the, when will we, we be allowed to start resuming youth sports and games? I know we can resume in Alameda County you know, groups of 12 or less doing um, maybe single team practices at this point. And I guess the follow on is how do we, we're dependent on school property where our fields are. 
how do you have any ideas for how we can help convince the school districts to um, renew our permits so that we can play? So I actually think, and with my transitional hat, this is actually an active discussion at the state level as well. And my understanding, there has not been approval at the state level for youth sports uh, to resume, especially playing uh, other teams. So I think this is actually uh, a statewide issue that is under consideration. I know there's discussions, and uh, as I get more up to speed on the state-level discussions, uh, I will know more on that end as well. But I think there are certainly concerns about uh, contact sports and having, you know, again, back to principles of minimizing risk for kids. I think our priority will be will be classrooms and learning and, of course, physical activity. But, but if we have different groups mixing, that may be of concern. So I think there's a lot more to balance there as well. Bruce, I thank you for the call. And I'm going to go to some more emails here with questions uh, and comments. Uh, Laura asks, is there any funding directed toward increased public education through TV ads and billboards about how this virus is spread and why covering the nose and face is required to allow reopening of the economy? A uh, great question and almost a plant because Alameda County, for example, just uh, launched a mask on campaign and we have some graphics on our website and are trying to disseminate those via social media and elsewhere and we have done those in different languages. We have some icons for pregnant women and in Chinese and in Spanish and then the state is also launching a big campaign around that and we're continuing to want to work with other community-based partners and leaders across the state to help us uh, to do that very thing, really normalize this new practice of, of mass. So uh, open to others who can continue to embrace that and, and do that, especially uh, at the local level in your communities. If you are a community leader or a community organization that can help promulgate those messages, disseminate them, and help us normalize this. It's nice when you get what seems like a plant that isn't a plant, isn't it? <laughs> Yes. Here's Paul, who writes, the reported positivity rate would be more useful if broken down by is the test subject symptomatic with no one or probable exposure, like healthcare workers or just a routine test. Yes, that's true. And I think different in different settings, people are looking at their own data as well. So healthcare systems are also looking potentially at their own data. Traditionally, with flu surveillance, you know, we are really then just looking at symptomatic people. So uh, to that point, I think there are lots of different ways, both in the public health level, but certainly even within healthcare systems or elsewhere, that that percent positivity is being looked at. And certainly, at the for public health, we also look at geographic differences. You know, we definitely have community testing sites that the percent positivity is correlating with the high case rates in those geographic areas. So all of that is being evaluated as well. I always learn a lot when we have you on, Erica Pond, and I want to express my appreciation. In fact, I want to read a listener response which says, criticism is easy for all of us, but I would like to express appreciation for public health officials like Dr. Pond doing their best in very challenging positions to keep us all healthy. Here, here. Thank you for that, whoever wrote it to us, and thank you, Dr. Pond, and good luck to you. You got your work cut okay. out for you, to put it mildly. Thank you so much. I really uh, am honored to be on again. Thank you very much. Appreciate your being on again, Dr. Erica Pond. will be California State Epidemiologist, Epidemiologist official in a number of days here, and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at the California Department of Public Health. She's former health officer of Alameda County. And we're here with you Monday through Friday. Um, and in fact, uh, I invite you to let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum. Uh, we'd like to know your thoughts and what you would like to hear and for that matter, in the future, you can email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.